Welcome to the Podcrastinators, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer and of course, podcast presenter. And I'm Matt Danaher, I'm an amateur writer, traveller, podcaster and Instagram influencer and professional union organiser and socialist who likes to be optimistic about a future. Okay, welcome to Podcrastinators, episode 20. No, it's not episode 20. It's episode 20. <laughs> don't no, you do this 19, to me again. It's 19. No, I'm doing 19.6. <laughs> that was for something different. Stop it. Right, well, in that case, we need to revert to our original numbering system. It's episode 21. Oh, for God's sake. Episode 20 worked really well because it was top 2.0. All right, then. Okay, we'll do, do episode have to, do you, I'm trying to be clever here. We'll God, I'm trying 20. to bring, I'm right. trying to bring now, some... Now you've explained why it's funny, it's funny. So. <laughs> well, it wasn't funny, but, you know. <laughs> I don't know if everyone would get it, but I got it. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Glad somebody appreciates my artistry. So, anyway... <laughs> He does this deliberately as well to throw me because he knows I can never do it a second time either. Right, welcome to Podcrastinators, episode 20, back to the top 2.0. Now, before the election in episode 15, we were joined by Shai Nabot, the then deputy leader. You've got a name wrong again. Oh, good God. You are killing me tonight. With Shai Nabot, who was back then in episode 15, the deputy leader of the Opportunity Party. Tonight, we're really pleased to be joined by Shai again after the election to give us her opinion on the election itself and what's going on in the Opportunities Party post the election result. Good evening, Shai. Good evening, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Obviously, the election's happened. Uh, A lot of things have changed since the election, um, including in the Opportunities Party. Um, could you give us um, your opinion, Shai, on the election result in general, whether you thought it was good, bad, indifferent, and give us a bit of an uh, update on what's been going on in the Opportunities Party? Well, no one ever said that running a small party would be easy, <laughs> and certainly not trying to do that in a global pandemic. Um, So, yeah, look, of course, we were really disappointed. We'd expected and hoped for higher, especially based on previous polling that had us around 2%. So, yeah, initially in those, you know, first few weeks after the election, we were really gutted. And it's really taken kind of the fullness of time to look back on our achievements and where we actually did really well when we took into account our resources and... Uh, comparing that to 2017 and actually we still really pushed above our weight so we're definitely on reflection feeling a lot more positive than kind of that initial hit. What was um, probably the biggest disappointment was it the actual percentage vote that you got or was there something else? Yes the percentage vote was disappointing for us but Ultimately, the biggest challenge, and I guess what was sort of the most disappointing, was how difficult it was to get media coverage throughout the entire campaign. And that was an obstacle for us day after day. And especially when you get excluded from, for example, the minor party debate, and you know that you're polling higher than two of the parties represented and polling the same as one of the other parties represented, it becomes really quite frustrating because you just feel that you're constantly up against more and more obstacles. What do you think's behind the media's decisions to choose who they chose? They, the criteria that they use is completely arbitrary. They come up with it themselves. It's certainly not based in anything in legislation. It's, and it's not based in anything that the Electoral Commission prescribes. So it's really difficult to say why it is they've selected that particular criteria. It's very exclusionary, especially when you get these really inconsistent outcomes and the loopholes that some people manage to get a seat through you know, sitting MPs who had 
So mm. yes, a specific reference there to Jamie. <laughs> it was. Um, look, it's it's really difficult to understand the, why the media makes certain decisions. It really did feel like they had decided the winners and losers before a Kiwi had even cast a single vote. And I don't think it's their role to be the gatekeepers of our democracy. I think we have an electoral commission for a reason, and it would be good to see the media defer to the criteria that they have to work with. What is so? The, do the electoral commission have criteria as well for? They have criteria in terms of how they allocate broadcasting funding, mm. and. That's, that determines how much parties are allowed to spend on TV advertising, radio advertising, and social media. You can spend over and above that on social media. That's the only difference. But keeping in mind, these are quite old rules and that have been sort of slowly adapted over time. But that, that's effectively the purpose of it. So that one political party couldn't be the only ones who could afford TV advertising, for example. And so for them to... Uh, figure out those different categories as to how much each party is going to be allocated. They take into account a range of different factors. So how you are polling at the time, how you, um, how successful you were in the previous election and social media statistics. They really do look at a range of factors and then they put you in categories. We were placed in the same category as the Māori Party and ACT, for example, both of who were included in the debates and we were excluded. So we felt that because we had been categorised by the Electoral Commission in that same category, we should just be treated the same as them. That sounds fair. I mean, I'm all for excluding... Um, there's so many parties out there, I think you have to exclude some and have a criteria for excluding them. But it does sound reasonable that if the Electoral Commission, who everyone trusts to oversee our entire process, is saying you're in the same category as ACT and the Māori Party, then it would make sense, surely, for you to be treated the same. And, and that was what we tried to you know voice but it, it doesn't really get you very far when again as I say they have the ability to create their own arbitrary criteria and the electoral commission does nothing about that maybe you should try donating 125 million to TVNZ donating 125 million to TVNZ might sometimes works but hey I'm not going to really make any uh, assumptions there um, upon reflecting um, on the election what were those key positives you took out of it how amazingly dedicated so many Kiwis are to a better future. I mean, we really were completely run almost exclusively by volunteers. We had three paid employee contractors effectively. And so no other party can say that. We really were very grassroots and that's so positive and we can only build on that. I think it's really exciting now going through this review process that we've just started to really see what we did so well. And when you compare what we achieved with the amount of money we had, we spent less than $10 per vote. It's going to work out to be even less than that um, when we finish all the maths. But certainly compared to 2017, when they spent at least around $60 a vote. So we that that's incredible. And we look at our social media statistics and we completely won the YouTube statistics and we came third on Facebook in those statistics. So there were a lot of little achievements along the way well, that, that were big to us. And so that's a really good sign for what we can build on going forward. From my point of view, when I were, was obviously looking and reading up on the party first time, I found one of the best things that you did was the policy in a minute videos. Yes. Um, because I think that really made things simple, really kind of helped people understand. And to be fair, you were campaigning on some pretty complex policies around taxation, around home ownership and all of that sort of stuff. So from an outsider looking in, that, that was definitely a win for you guys to doing that kind of um, that kind of campaigning. Thank you. Yes, I think that is part of what why our YouTube was so popular because that was the place where you could go and really have the simplified version of, as you as you say, what are really complicated policy documents, so that it's more accessible for people, and especially when you're expecting people to be interested and then grasp these complicated concepts and realise that, you know, there aren't just simple solutions to these huge societal and economic issues. 
So yeah, thank you for saying that. Uh, that did seem to be to us a really popular avenue to learn about what we were talking about as well. I definitely saw people sharing them on Facebook that I wouldn't have assumed were top supporters. Oh, that's awesome. It's so great to hear. So if you take your political hat off as leader of top, <laughs> you're, you're now like speaking as a, as a New Zealander, so to speak. What's your feeling of the election result? Because it was a huge landslide for one party. So how how did you feel about that as a New Zealander, shall we say? Yeah. Look, clearly to me, it just says that everybody was focused on COVID. And even though everyone before the election said it's going to be a COVID election, COVID election, I don't think anybody ever anticipated just how big that red wave was going to be. And it does call into question, you know, this idea that in this country we still have a lot of the hangovers from this first past the post idea that you need to double down on one or one of two parties and that's it. And really, that is what we saw this time, and we saw we've seen, you know, almost a reduced number of. Well, we've seen a reduced number of representation, right? We have effectively one hugely powerful government who, I mean, on the other hand, we have a hugely powerful government who's going to be its own handbrake. So there's the self-check and balance on that. I'm sure we can get to that later. But um, yeah, look, we, we voted as, as a country twice now for MMP because we have apparently said that we want to see wider representation. So on the one hand, we've voted for it twice. And then on the other, when it comes to our party votes, we still vote like it's first past the post. So it's sort of like as a country, we have these really conflicting ideas about what type of a government and what type of a parliament we want to see. But I do think this was an anomaly. I do think it was a COVID election. And that was why that red wave was just so extreme. And I think we could have seen that going in because the early voting numbers were the highest they've ever been. Partly that could be coming down to people wanting to reduce risks and concerns around COVID, but probably more significantly, it was everyone was over the election. You could feel it when you were out on the street. Everyone was over it. Everyone just wanted it done. For so long, It was Labour was a sure thing to be the next government, whatever size that would be to be determined. But so everyone was like, let's just vote. Let's just get this done. Let's move on. So you say that obviously we've voted for MMP twice, but when it comes to the big day, we don't seem to act that way. What do you think is really blocking people from making that step and actually going to the, to the minor parties more? A big one is the media. It's a really big one. Leading up to the election, the fact that we still have debates that are down to one, two leaders, you have major leader debates with only Labour and National at the table is a complete double down of this first past the post idea. There are no minor and major parties. There are bigger parties and smaller parties, but it is an MMP system. And unless and until the media lets go of that, because in our system, there should never be a debating stage with just two parties. All parties should be there because to be honest, leading into this election, all of the ideas were coming from the, the small parties all of the policy ideas and all of the pushing was not coming from those two major main parties, the two big parties. The media needs to change its thinking here and that's going to help our society change our thinking as well. It really, you even look, you know, you look at the spreads in the Herald who are dominating the headlines and who are dominating that free space the small parties aren't. It's not just, I mean, we obviously got excluded left, right and centre, but it was something that I know the Greens struggled with, the Māori Party struggled with as well as other small parties because perhaps it's down to, yeah, I mean, it's the media. It really is. It does feel like, as you've said, it does feel like it was an unusually tough election and I don't know whether any analysis has been done yet um, of the impact across all of the, the newer or smaller parties, but it seems like all suffered in different ways and didn't do as well as they might have done all things being equal in a sort of normal election year mm. um so that is quite interesting it's an interesting point about the which hadn't occurred to me actually about the fact that you do still get those labor versus national debates and that doesn't make any sense no 
none at all, and particularly going forward, it will make even less sense when you have that other large party polling under 30%. <laughs> Yeah, what, it's becoming increasingly irrelevant. What's interesting, when you look at the winners and losers on the night, obviously I think the discussion of how big Labour's majority was going to be, um, is you know, some people expected this, some didn't. The Greens obviously polled a lot better than what was expected. They generally poll strong, perform weekly, and actually performed strongly and even took out the biggest seat in arguably New Zealand in Auckland Central. Um, so that was a big surprise as well. And what, what I think going forward is also going to be interesting, we've spoke about this um, previously, with potentially the loss of New Zealand first, with the loss of advanced New Zealand pretty much, you know, some big changes going on in the new Conservative Party. That kind of feels like there's this 5%, 6% vote. At the moment, you'd say far right or right wing vote is that an opportunity to grab or is that something to be concerned about that there is this potential five, six percent very right leaning vote looking for a home in New Zealand? Is it is it that high? I mean, it's hard to say that it would be quite that high because, you know, new conservatives, they got one and a half advanced didn't even make one. So I don't know that we could say there's five percent at that extreme, right? But uh, certainly, it is it is a concern. I think it should concern all of us. And we've seen a huge increase in that with, you know, that really fragmented right across the board because, you know, hugely we had a lockdown where people were on the internet, on Facebook for long periods of time, getting into their eco chambers and getting fed a lot of this really dangerous conspiracy theory information. And that's really pushed this rise of those people, because you look at them and that, they're saying the same comments as we hear coming out of the states and their far right groups as well. And it's really scary to see that permeate here in New Zealand. But I, I do, the optimist in me tells me that it really does have a small cap. There's always going to be a much smaller cap of people who will be attracted to that and it just won't grow. Whereas I see the centre is somewhere that is can always grow. And I see us having a lot more capacity to grow our vote than Advanced New Zealand. I think they're going to cap out quickly. Speaking of Advanced New Zealand, um, I just while you were talking about a little calculation, and if you look at the um, split vote statistics for the North Shore electorate, and I don't know if you've done this yet, but... 5.26% of people that gave their party vote to Advance New Zealand voted for you. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, I, I did it. I, I, I've used percentagecalculator.net to just double check what that actually means. And it means 12.98, 12 12.98 actually, voters who voted for Advance New Zealand in North Shore party vote voted for you in the candidate vote. Okay. Which I don't think you can draw any conclusions from that because I don't think it's a significant <laughs> sample. But um, it is interesting to look at those voter breakdowns and actually start looking at, I think, to answer Darren's question a bit about actually how, if you look across the country as a whole, how some of those kind of, I, I would describe as kind of the, the kind of uh, illegitimate right kind of votes or the, you know, I, I would categorise ACT and New Zealand First voters slightly differently to new conservative and advanced new zealand and people like that but actually seeing how their votes broke down across the picture it's it's quite messy it's not it's not like they they split between new zealand first act and then those further right parties they kind of went all over the place a little bit that is interesting i haven't done any analysis of advanced new zealand but that is interesting to know that um i took 12 of their votes i'm not i can't even remember if they had a candidate in my electorate or not no but, it didn't, well it didn't according to the, according right. to the yeah i didn't think report. so so yeah, it is interesting. And there's perhaps there is a element in there of just the anti-establishment. And mm. I think a, a lot of what we sort of stand for, a lot of our messaging is anti-establishment in many ways because we do set out to challenge the status quo. We do set out for real significant change from what has been 30 years of the same old, same old. And so I do think an aspect of that would appeal to that type of a voter. 
So perhaps it shouldn't be too surprising that there's a little bit of crossover there, but when you dig down into the detail, I don't think we have any real common ground. <laughs> no, I mean, that's why, I, that's why I highlighted it, not just because you're on here, but because, <laughs> you know, um, what, whatever people might think on an individual level of opportunities, parties, policies, they are like, evidence-based and kind of, you know, properly thought out. I think the last thing you can say about Advanced New Zealand is that anything was evidence-based. Yes, so was. you're probably right that it is that kind of anti-establishment vibe you gave off, which which reminds me of kind of, there felt like there was a time during the election campaign where top was kind of clearly put, uh, putting its mark out there as being a party that was prepared to work with either of the major blocks um, that could go either way that if you voted for either party and obviously when you came on last time you were very strong on that but then after that it felt like there was a bit of a shift and actually a, more of what top and I'm just trying to think of the exact examples more about what you were saying kind of might have appealed to your traditional green and labor voters than your traditional national voters. And it felt like it kind of became a bit less, you know, you became a bit more closely associated with our side of the street, if you like, um, than the other side. And I just wonder whether you've given any thought to whether that had an impact one way or the other. Um, I mean, yeah, you're right. We have always said, and we still continue to say that we will and would work with either of those large parties. But a couple of weeks out from the election, it became very clear that National was not going to be the next government. And so we needed to be clear that if it's going to be Labour, which it was inevitable, we would work with them. Uh, and so it was simply saying, look, let's accept the reality here. It will be Labour. We'll work with them and that's fine. But interesting, you, you felt that we were um, more aligning that, that side of the street, if you will, because really in that last week before the election, we put all of our, I don't want to say all of our eggs in one basket, but we really targeted national voters. And we were right. saying to them, look, guys, this is not your election. Let it go. But you have a chance to have another voice in there that's not the Greens, that will work with Labour and make sure that we're steering them in, in this solid economic direction. So, we really spent a lot of time talking to them because we could start to see that a lot of our growth had been coming from national. And mm. so we just tried to double down on that, basically. And certainly looking at the split vote statistics again, um, which I did, I did put a link to it in the uh, Google Doc if you want to have a look. Ah. The national, people who voted party vote national, which is obviously a huge number, but 0.61% for the Opportunities Party, you, sorry, as a candidate, and I'm just trying to see the other way around, the Opportunities Party for, um, that, yeah, 13.9% of you, of people who voted Opportunities Party in the party vote, voted for the National Party candidate. And I think that's kind of significant to some extent. Um, whereas 14.14% voted from of Labour votes, or people who voted for Romy, voted um, for the Opportunities Party as the party vote. And I, I think yeah. that does show that you were exactly between the two as far as the electorate were concerned. Yeah, I think. And that, that's probably a fair representation of where we sit and um, that we do fairly evenly attract voters from both sides, really. Um, and looking across the country, I haven't um, managed to delve into the detail across everywhere, but on just sort of an initial review, we're fairly even in terms of our split between Labour, National and Greens, which is quite interesting. Mm, it was definitely an example, somebody I know who would normally vote Green, who lives in Mount, Mount Albert, uh, electorate, would never vote Jacinda, just on a pure anti kind of government kind of kick as much as anything. Uh, but the Green Party stood an 18-year-old candidate. And it's we're all for youth, and this person in particular is, is definitely for youth representation <laughs> and, you know, a fan of Chloe's. But the idea that an 18-year-old has got the kind of skills or experience required to be a, an effective MP is just ludicrous and actually probably you could argue offensive to the voters of Mount Albert that they might even want to consider voting for somebody that young not to you know sound like a boomer or anything but my goodness so they voted they voted the opportunities party because um you know you seem to kind of offer something that was clearly appealing to that to their kind of alternative kind of not the government but not mad either kind of you know they, yeah. they weren't going to vote social credit um so 
opportunities party was the one for them. Yeah, I think that sort of um, moves into that just general conversation around how people vote for their candidates. And something I found really interesting this year being the first election I had campaigned in to see how people vote for their candidates and what that suggests in terms of what they think that vote means. And it's probably not surprising because as far as I know, we still have no decent civics education. Certainly I never grew up mm, with any, and I right. know many generations right. never grew up with many. Totally right. And so there's this huge lack of understanding and it's the education's fault that there's this huge lack of understanding as to how MMP actually works and what each vote means. I mean, anecdotally, I, ha- I know people who were working in the voting uh, places and people after they had cast their vote would come up to them and say, oh, I had two votes. What was the second one for? Why did I have to vote for a person? Just for example, and wow. that, that was quite a common question. And so clearly the Electoral Commission and our schools just haven't been doing a good job to really explain how Parliament is made up and what your two votes mean. And I think the best example of this for me of every candidate in the country was the landslide that David Clark got voted back in on because Jacinda was telling everyone, every Labour voter, two ticks Labour, two ticks Labour. So they come along and they two ticks Labour, which meant that they re-voted in someone who, while a health minister, committed multiple breaches of lockdown orders. That, If that doesn't tell us that our people have not got the message around how MMP works, I don't know what will teach us that we need to be better in explaining how Parliament is made up. Well, it's kind of counterintuitive, though, because, I mean, speaking as a speaking as a kind of fairly active person in the Labour Party, um, we often have these debates ourselves where people are like sort of new people who are just getting involved in politics or have even been involved for a few years. They're like, remind me again, which one's the more important vote? And it's like, well, actually, from any party point of view, it's the party vote that matters. It doesn't matter where you are party vote is the important thing if you want to as a Labour Party person if you actually want to show your support for another party but ensure you get back into power you actually give your candidate vote to the other party even though they haven't realistically got a chance of winning but you're at least demonstrating your support and the fact that you like them that's right but people seem to think that the party vote is for the smaller parties basically and if anything I'd argue the opposite because for for a smaller party you should have a much better chance of winning the seat than getting the 5% in in many cases. And so for certainly Labour and National, they will not grow the number of seats they get if they win electorates. It's the minor parties that are set to gain the most from winning electorates as well. Well, exactly. And we had a, in Labour, we had a nervous moment when the the, the later votes, the special votes were counted and we were like, oh my goodness, actually... We could have actually lost a seat while gaining an electorate. We could have lost a seat off the end because the electorate votes would have outnumbered the party votes. Or it's a it's an area that even confuses me. But I do remember we were trying to calculate whether a certain MP would fall off, would fall out of Parliament. And it was like, no, actually, we were lucky that our votes were so because we won. In fact, the only reason that didn't happen was because we won two electorates, which took two MPs off of the list and into their electorates, which meant there was more space on the list. Otherwise, we would have been at risk of actually losing an MP. Um, despite seeing our overall vote share increase, that's right. But it's and it's something that actually that I think the Greens did very effectively in Auckland Central, where they really campaigned hard and they said, no, it's actually if you candidate vote, um, if you're a Labour Party supporter here and you candidate vote Chloe, especially as she's the one you've seen, you haven't seen the Labour Party candidate, you don't even know who she is really. You know, she'll probably still get on. Here's where she is on the list. She'll probably still get in if you're that bothered. Um, but actually, if you want Chloe in, vote for her on the uh, electorate vote. And it seems it definitely worked for them. I mean, there's no question. Oh, most definitely. Given that this election was an anomaly and it was a COVID election and so many um, things that would normally apply don't apply, when you're trying to review the election and look for how to move, move forward, how difficult is that when it's just such an anomaly as an election? I think regardless of external factors, there are always internal things that you need to look back on yourself and improve. There are always things that we can work on. And so what we're doing at the moment as part of this review process is really pinpointing those areas 
that were either blind spots or our biggest weaknesses and really honing in on those and fixing those. Because unless you're prepared to really take a good look at yourself and acknowledge that, yes, we were facing a ton of external obstacles and we absolutely were, there are a number of things that we need to work on. And so that's really going to be our biggest focus. So we're not going to, um, while there is a lot that we can explain and understand because of the nature of this year that we've just been in, that is not in any way for us to say, well, we'll do better next time if it wasn't for COVID because you just, you don't improve that way. And so going back to top, obviously, Jeff has obviously stepped down as leader. Jeff Simmons. I know, yeah, Jeff Simmons. And I know he, he just was the football manager. I didn't say Jeff Hurst, and Jeff Hurst is not a football manager. You did say Jeff Hurst. I didn't say Jeff Hurst. You did. <laughs> and Jeff Simmons. Anyway, anyway, Jeff Simmons has obviously stepped down, and obviously I can, from reading your comments after Danny was obviously someone that you respected. Was it the right thing for him to do? It was completely understandable. He had really given everything he had to top for two elections. And it is very grueling as a small party with very little funding in a way that I don't think most people would appreciate. And it's certainly not something I had appreciated before I started doing this because he was paid, he was a contractor, but very little. And then over and above that, because it is a nonprofit organization, you volunteer on top of the time that you're contracted to give. So you're really doing two jobs in one all the time, if not more. And so when you are working those grueling hours for months and months and months on end, it's not sustainable. And certainly not when you in your personal life want to start a family and change direction as his friend, I could absolutely understand why and supported him for that. Um, but of course, you know, as his top colleague, very gutted. <laughs> On that note, because I mean, you don't make it sound very appealing. And as someone who works for a nonprofit, I totally agree in terms of the amount of hours people tend to put in uh, beyond what they're paid for. Are you tempted to uh, put yourself forward? I mean, I don't know how your internal leadership process works, but are you tempted to stay on as leader? I'm not. I'm not okay. for many reasons. I've always been very upfront about that, that I see what I'm doing right now as very much a caretaker role that um, I will run as leader and, and fulfill its role completely for the time that I'm here. But I don't and have never seen myself as taking it forward into the long term. And I'm really confident that we will have somebody who will fulfill that into the longer term and be able to give it everything that we need. So that's, that's another question really that follows on from that then is because, especially with smaller parties, I mean, you've, you've talked enough as it is about how hard it is to get the oxygen of publicity. And um, and again, you know, speaking from personal experience here, developing that kind of second tier of leaders um, within any organisation is hard, let alone when it's a small organisation and it's one that's struggling with visibility. And do you feel you've been able to, through the last three years and the election before that as well, do you feel like you've been able to bring up a kind of, develop a kind of layer of people that where you've got a good pool of talent to choose from or you're going to have to look outside oh, I think that was one of Jeff's strongest skills as a leader was his ability to empower and support people to grow and develop new skills and to really step up within top and so I don't have any concerns around the breadth of expertise and skill set that we have amongst our team uh, so I feel quite confident that we could find someone internally um but it, it we may go externally so it's not a decision that has been made i can't preempt anything because it and i'm not keeping anything a secret because it genuinely hasn't been decided oh, yeah. as yet. and you could you could keep it a secret it's perfectly legitimate for political yeah, i know i know but so um whilst as i say i'm very confident we will find the right person and that might be internal but but yeah, it could be somebody else as well. So there are a lot of leaders inside our organisation, whether they want to be the next party leader or just step up in terms of responsibility. We have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah. And do you do you have a timetable or is it fairly loose at the moment, um, it not being an election year next year? Yeah, I, I had originally hoped or perhaps was a bit optimistic that we would get it done preview, uh, before Christmas. 
it doesn't look like that will happen, but it will hopefully be really early in the new year. Cool. Darren, are you back with us? I am. I've uh, I've dropped out a few times during that, and uh, I think one thing that proved to me today is that I need to go and buy a, a broadband booster for the mm-hmm. for the house, given that um, I'm now sitting so far away from the uh, broadband system. But um, I did catch most of it, so that's uh, that's good. Um, obviously, a new leader brings new ideas. Do you see the top will stay fundamentally true to its values? I mean, obviously, you're going to look for someone like that in a leader. Or do you see, you know, as part of this reflection that you could change tack a little bit? I think in terms of the values, our identity and sort of the top brand and who we stand for is something that we need to get better at articulating regardless. And that's sort of something that has already been coming through in terms of feedback that we've been getting and as part of the review process and something we're really going to focus on. Um, and make it clearer to people, you know, really who top is rather than just this bunch of people who are obsessed with evidence-based policies. Um, and so sort of putting a bit of colour over why and for what purpose. But in terms of our core policy and that obsession with evidence-based policies, that will not change. That is fundamentally who top is and, and our approach. And it's even the fact that we have a separate policy committee to determine policies under our constitution really emphasizes that that commitment to making sure that, w- that all the policy solutions and approaches that we are promoting, it's because experts have told us that is how you get to the end goal. That That's not going to change. So how we package it, how we explain it, how we talk about those policies, could certainly change, but the policies themselves will only change when the evidence changes. Mm, that's where you can say that your values are reflected. And when you're in right? Oh, sorry. No, carry on, Matt. Oh, it's weird. Your voice is out of sync with your image, so you might want to turn your video <laughs> off. If you turn your video off, it might make your audio better. But in the meantime... Why Most people are happy when I turn. Yeah, no, you're still breaking up. I can't hear you. Turn your video off. Right, hopefully that'll work. In the meantime, um, it, it sounds like what you're talking about really is that the part of your values as a party is very much around the methodology. The the way you reach your policies and you adopt your policies as much as it is the policies itself, which is that evidence-based approach, I guess. I'd probably describe that more as sort of identity versus values. Mm, okay, yeah. I, I sort of, I mean, our values have always just been about fairness and striving to ensure equality of opportunity for every Kiwi and ensuring that we're leaving the world in a better state than it is now for future generations to come through. But we need to better clarify and and speak first and foremost from those values and speak to the heart of people and do that a lot more and focus far more on that than the detail. We have the detail there. But that's not really what most people tend to search for when they're looking for a political team. Darren, are you there now? I'm here still, yes. Cool. Whilst I've been off camera, I've been dodging through rooms to try and find one where I can actually get a good broadband signal. So, um, yeah, when you were out actually campaigning, Shy and stuff like that, which were the policies that were really resonating, what you thought, hang on, we've got something here? Housing, by by quite a mile, actually. Second to that was universal basic income, which sparked people's attention from the left and the right, which I loved. But by quite a mile, it was housing. It was really our commitment to all the solutions and knowing it's not just one thing and knowing that we have to tackle it from all sides, but not ignore one of the sides and just hope that people forget about it. When you were talking to people about housing, did you tell them that they were the ones to blame for the problem that we've got? <laughs> oh, I think that was a very rare PR misstep for our PM this week. Um, the only people responsible for our housing crisis are the successive governments who have failed to put in place the policies to fix this 
And that is not the fault of voters. That is the fault of the representatives who are failing to do their job. It does feel like one of the ways in which smaller parties can sort of improve their relevance to people and kind of cut through um, being ignored by the media, and I'm looking at experiences from around the world here, not just the UK, is... Um, is by latching onto one or two issues and just keep on going at them, especially when you can be fairly confident. And I might edit this bit out later, um, depending on how many of my co compatriots in the party over are listening to this. Um, <laughs> but you know, the government are probably going to fail on housing, right, over the next three years. There's other Sadly. things that I'm, I'm expecting they won't fail on, and I'm hoping they won't. But of all my priorities, I think housing is the one that they're not going to. Get, provide anything decent in the next three years on if the opportunities party just keep hammering on that issue and maybe one or two others it feels like there may be an opportunity there to actually start to cut through yeah and and that's certainly what we expect to see a lot of a lot of the shine has already gone and we're you know what a couple of weeks into two weeks into parliament so it's it's sort of frustrating because this is a topic that we have been talking about well for years for top but you know, specifically all year we've been talking about this and we were watching the policies that were and were not being talked about and were and were not being proposed and getting incredibly frustrating. We could see, I mean, this is not a new crisis. This has been going on for 30 years. It's just exponentially worse in the last 12 months. And not many people were talking about it. Certainly the media weren't focusing on it at all. And so that was frustrating because we were trying to really have it become a national conversation instead of just COVID because we could see this was coming. And sure enough, right after the election, finally the media are like, wow, we really need to talk about this crisis again. And so now we've seen over the last three weeks that that has been the, co the constant number one topic you see everywhere, which is great because it should be. Mm. It's just frustrating that it's come after the election because Labor did not have a single policy to address our housing crisis leading into the election. They had let go of their failed Kiwi build, not that that was ever going to work anyway, but aside from the point, they'd let go of what they campaigned on in 2017, the CGT. Again, that policy wouldn't work to stop house prices increasing, but that's not the point. Their complete failure to have policy in this space has not helped. And now we're at a situation where the media are hounding our leaders to talk about policy and the best we get from them is we're working on it and we will look at the solutions when experts have been telling successive governments for years what needs to happen and they've just completely ignored it it's unacceptable this is unusual concept to think that labor are having a working group on something and um, maybe one day there'll be some findings out of it is there's no need for that. The, the advice has been given time after time after time. So now their decision, and it is an act of decision to ignore expert advice, we're all suffering the consequences. I didn't know that the Opportunities Party was so committed to solutions to the housing crisis until you came on the podcast for the first time. I Before that, I associated the Opportunities Party, and I did my research into it as well before you came on, and I still hadn't picked up on that until you were on talking about it. So I, I knew you were about the UBI. I knew that you had some interesting um, approaches to evidence-based policy and stuff like that that Bed looking at. And there was one other thing I was aware of that you you were kind of uh, had, had adopted as a policy priority. And housing, I did not know. It was literally when you, I think the taxation, that was the other thing I knew about. It was when you came on and talked about it that I realised how passionate you were as an individual, but also how important it was to the party. And it feels like I'm probably, given that I do, you know, I probably am more aware of a lot of politics and politi political parties than a lot of people, because I've got an interest in it. The fact that I didn't know that um, suggests that probably a lot of people didn't know that. Definitely. And that's a real struggle for us and something we are going to be focusing on the most is really just how do we get our message out there and how do we reach people outside our bubble? And that's an ongoing challenge. How do you stop talking to the people who are already your supporters mm. and really pushing those limits? So, yeah, that, that's a huge thing for us. It's really communicating and, and housing 
is and has been our number one priority because it really is at the crux of our societal and economic issues in this country. It's the single biggest driver of inequality and poverty. And it's also, I mean, not just to mention, it is wealth in this country is in property. And then we have an economic crisis growing because businesses are not getting the investment that they need to grow to allow them to support new jobs and exports, which then does actually grow the economy, unlike buying and selling houses to each other, it just doesn't. And so that's why, I mean, it's the main reason I'm with TOP is its commitment to really fixing this issue and talking about the solutions that experts have been screaming for. Knowing that those solutions are not all politically popular or palatable or sellable, but just knowing that there's, we're not going to fix this unless and until we have a real honest conversations with ourselves and say enough is enough, we'll do what it takes to fix it. I think you hit a problem there. You've identified a problem there when you say it's not sellable and it's not particularly palatable because then the question is, well, you can only really make a difference if you can get into a position to leverage um, something around your policy, whether it's having two MPs holding the balance of power or, whether, or even one MP, or whether it's having, you know, actually winning a significant number of seats. And it's how you... How do you do, and you also winning those seats, being clearly identified with that policy, because you know yourself when you get into the coalition negotiations or whatever, mm. confidence and supply negotiations, your your coalition partners are going to be saying, or potential coalition partners are going to be saying, ah, yeah, but you didn't get, when you're trying to get your policies across, they'll be saying, well, you didn't get elected on that promise. People voted for you because of the UBI, or they voted for you of whatever other thing that they're also interested or sympathetic in. And if they don't also buy into your, solution for housing then you're not even going to get it across in any coalition or confidence and supply agreement so it's kind of how you get your ideas whether they're right or not and i i honestly don't know i'm, I'm very open to what you say around housing as a party i think it is interesting um how you actually get that into the place where you need it to be is really it's a really big challenge for sure but i think you cannot turn away from the base of people that you have, which if we didn't have thresholds, we would have had two seats. I think that's important to note. We just mm. happen to have a system that has decided that you need a 5% starting point to get the ticket to get into the door. Um, what was your total percentage again? Sorry. 1.5%. Sorry, no, it's, yeah, just, just over that, I think. Um, so that it would work out to be two seats. And I think... Um, that is important to know because that is still a lot of people who are buying into what you are selling. And how and many thousands of people was it? Sorry to cut you off there, but forty-four. I haven't. Looked, I can't remember. Yeah, and that's more. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's more than the total. Is that more than the total number of people who voted ACT in the last election? Oh, certainly. They got less than a percent last time. Yeah. So yeah. they got zero point eight from memory. Something similar. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we shouldn't write people, we shouldn't write the Opportunities Party off. Well, look Act at Act in now. 2017 got around, what, 13,000 votes? Yes. And so more than double that. There's always room to grow. There's always room to improve and, and have that voice. But you're right, we, I just need to plug in my laptop. Sorry. No problem. And while, while, while Shai's doing that, Darren, I wonder if it's worth... I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm turning this into a brainstorm of how do we help top next for the next three years. <laughs> well, we could we could become contractors. We can become contractors for them. Uh, we can be consultants. Like, I'm happy to do that. I don't care. I, do I, I, I think the Opportunities Party deserve to have a place in our in our political conversation. Absolutely, and it does make me think. You know, what is what was it that helped? I, I think that if I was in the Opportunities Party now, I'd be looking at how did David Seymour capitalised on what was happening politically to help ACT get to where they are now, not by stealing his clothes or by adopting similar policies, but just looking at the approach they took oh. uh, in terms of how, because he's he, he is the other real winner of the election. I think it's really difficult when you look at ACT and trying to use them as an example, because they quite clearly targeted New Zealand first, right? or they almost turned the vote around from what New Zealand first got last election. 
it almost became a Seymour versus Peters sideshow in Parliament all the time. Um, if it wasn't Collins and, and Ardern, it was Peters and Seymour, and Seymour got through out of Parliament at least once on the on um, challenging Peters. So that one was difficult because I think that was almost a straight vote swap, that one was. I think the, uh, the home-grown um, New Zealand first voters were really disillusioned with the fact that Peters had supported Ardern into Parliament. Well, I think they made him pay for that. Except the last time I looked at it, there was a big swing from New Zealand first to Labour, first of all, um, or a swing. Um, and it's also true that ACT did take a lot of votes from the National Party. They did take a lot of votes for na from National, but I think it's also really important to remember, you know, David Seymour can run that populist style of politics that that the right wing can enjoy and can do quite well from and found a couple of real niche support bases and, and really doubled down on those repeatedly. And so that that was gave him a great start and then he built on that. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult because we, I think we're trying to do so many things at the same time. We're trying to challenge the status quo. We want to do politics differently. We want, don't want to go down that awful attack style politics. We want to talk about policy, not people. We wanted to move people around away from that psyche of you have to be left or right and fit into a box. And, you know, each of those things are really big changes that we were trying to do all at the same time. And you just can't, you can't achieve changing in all those huge areas when it's really, we're talking about the ingrained psyche of New Zealanders when it comes to politics. And so, yeah, I think it, it's difficult. I'm looking at the party votes again, the total party vote numbers, and it's interesting to see that you were the second place of the parties that didn't make it into Parliament. Basically, you were second only to New Zealand First. Yes. I think that's an interesting comment you make, Shy, about we want to talk about policy, not people, because when you look at the last election, it was a massive populist vote. Um, you know, Ardern really is the Labour Party. When you look past Ardern and one or two ministers, there's no talent. I know Matt hates that, but there's no talent. Zero. No, talent. you're just wrong, that's all. No, I'm not wrong. David Clark, Phil Twyford, Stuart Nash. I don't even have to go anywhere. Um, the idiot with the speech on election night, he's so <laughs> invisible, like no one knows his name, Kelvin Davis, you know. But Labour Party, you think Ardern. Actor, you think Seymour. New Zealand first, you think for Winston Peters. Um, those bigger parties, you know, the Green Party is probably the interesting one, and most people think James Shaw, even though they do have a dual leadership. It almost feels like, and this is where I think National were a problem, right, because they had Bridges, they had Muller, they had Collins. Um, so nobody really was a resonator for the National Party. Does the top part, does top really need a, a figure that is, um, you know, that, that can resonate with voters, that people can, um, you know, sort of get on to a, a bandwagon with and, and get onto a journey. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. We have to accept that personality does matter, whether we like it or not. It is how people vote. People do vote for, if they like somebody, they're going to vote for them. If they think that they see themselves in that person or if they can relate to them, they're going to vote for them. They're going to be more likely to vote for them. So, yes, the leader does matter. We just don't want it to be the be-all and end-all that it is with some of those parties that you mentioned. And it's sort of about finding a balance between having a strong leader and then having a justification for your existence, which is your policies, which is what you stand for, which is how you say you're going to achieve the solutions that everyone says they can achieve. Because the one thing I'm interested in, and you never can know the answer about this, so you can only hypothesise, but if just before the election Ardern went, well, thank you very much, I'm off to the United Nations, and then <laughs> in comes Kelvin Davis as the new leader, would it have been the same COVID election? Yeah, that is a very interesting hypothetical as to where would, where would voters have gone 
in that instance, where, where would that exodus have led people? It's really, yeah, it's an interesting hypothetical. I like to think a lot of people would have landed with top, of course, because at that point they would have thought, well, pff, doesn't even matter who our leader is at that point because there wouldn't have been a single obvious preferred leader. Um, so could have been, the game could have opened up, who knows. <laughs> But I kind of think about if you're not going to go for a populist person or, or, or you're going to take a very policy-driven um, sort of campaign, do you have to do like what the Maori Party did and they very obviously targeted Tamati Coffey's seat as their shoe-on into Parliament? They were very, very... And I know we spoke in, in the last episode and you guys were going pretty hard after Ahario Valley, I think it was, down in Wellington... Um, is that potentially your way in that you have to kind of actually the five percent is so such a restraint that you just got to throw every resource into a seat, get the one and a half percent, and drag the second person through on the back of that? Yeah, and I don't want to predetermine what the um, 2023 strategy would be, but we would certainly be looking at targeting a seat. Um, I don't, I can't imagine us ever doing that in place of also trying to go for the party vote. Uh, we've seen with the Māori Party, they dragged in that second seat um, with that party vote. So it, unless we get a change in the space, um, you know, with changes to the legislation that we heard the Prime Minister talk about a couple of weeks ago, which could get rid of this ability, uh, which would again change everybody's, all the small parties' strategies around what you do in that case. But what she announced? I missed that one. She's announced what removing the one of the one of the thing. recommendations from the Electoral Commission is around coattailing and not having it. So if the government does indeed finally after eight or so years, eight years, look at those recommendations in the way that they said they will, then that could potentially go. We'll have to wait and well, see. Well I'd be up for that if we could use it to get act out of Parliament, but I wouldn't want to use it if acts are doing so well, they're going to get in anyway. What's the point? And, and then it excludes people like Top, who I actually wouldn't, or the Māori Party for that matter, who I'm quite happy with either party having a couple of MPs, right? So, it's an interesting one, right? The threshold I find a really interesting conversation because you hear a lot of people in support for some level of threshold being that they don't want those extremists to have a seat. But, you know, as if that one seat would then all of a sudden allow them to take over Parliament all by themselves. And that, that simply just wouldn't happen. They would still just be a seat. And so, yes, let's start with the Electoral Commission's recommendations down to four and then in time down to three. But really, we need to have a national conversation around why so many people, whenever you have a threshold, so many people are going to end up not being represented. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, to be honest, my personal view is actually I would have no threshold. Um, I, I think that, I mean, as a, as a Labour Party campaigner and activist who wanted to see a strong Labour-led government, you know, it's the kind of thing where I can say, on the one hand, in my ruthless self-interest, I don't want those small parties in there. <laughs> it makes it harder in the negotiation, because there's clear policies I want to see get through, and the more coalition negotiations you have, the harder it is to get those policies through, right? But on the other hand, the Democrat in me says, why should any of those people be unrepresented? Especially when this election, seven odd percent of people had their votes reallocated. Mm. That's the same number, virtually the same number of percentage votes that the Greens got. You kind of look at that and you go, well, that surely flies in the face of MMP. And democracy, I would argue. Yeah. 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 And totally. so, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a top policy, but my personal view is also no threshold uh, for that reason. Because if you, if enough people can support a seat, they should have that seat. If enough people support two seats, they get those two seats. Yeah. I think what's interesting, and it's been touted for about a year now, is if the voting age gets lower to 16, that changes everything again, right? Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that would support that change, especially when we have year after year, even though this year we did see an increase in that young vote, which is great to see, but it's still a real challenge for the Electoral Commission to really increase that youth vote. And if we've seen that lowering the age of overseas in Scotland down to 16 really does increase that group, then let's enfranchise them early uh, let's start that 
voting habit early. Absolutely. You can pay taxes, you can work, you can... Um, I don't know, can you join the Defence Forces at 16 here? I, I don't I know. Think, I can't remember about Defence Forces, but it does raise a really interesting question. As you mentioned taxes, it, it someone said recently, and it absolutely is taxation without representation yeah. in a very real sense. And so we've just accepted it for so long that it is what it is, and you just you know have to wait your three years before you can... Yeah, it. and it, right, used to be, it used to be 21. And then before that, women couldn't vote. So, you know, why why not keep trying to push forward and expand the voter base? I don't see there being any risks to anyone, to be honest. Especially when you think, yeah, especially when you think about how educated and how politically aware so many 16, 17-year-olds are. And no one could say they're less aware or less politically savvy than 30s and 40-year-olds. They are paying attention and so we need to respect that more i think but then do you need to lower voting the drinking age and everything else to go with it because of course no. by that point you're voting for policies that affect that sort of stuff so well given that the most effective campaign is against um underage uh, against um people drink driving under the age of 18 were actually school students i wouldn't have any concerns in that area i don't think you'd see people campaigning for to lower the drinking age or the smoking age or anything else personally because probably at 16 voting would be the biggest thing that you could do right yeah you can get married at 16 and get married and drive and all those other things you can already do from where Matt's from in England you could get married at 12 <laughs> yeah no I'm not from Alabama or something surely not still <laughs> no <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's one question, I and if I missed this, Shy, while I was having some technical issues, I'm sorry. I did catch the fact that you said that you're not going to run for leader. But what is your future in the top party? Do you intend to carry on in politics? I Yeah, I, I intend to be in whatever role with top that the party wants me to have, um, but not leader. So if they want me to continue to being deputy leader going forward, I will do that. If as part of finding our new leader, there's someone else that comes along and will do a better job of deputy, I want them to have it. My priority and why I was doing this in the first place is just better outcomes for New Zealand. Top only has to exist because the other establishment parties just haven't been succeeding and haven't been actioning these huge issues for decades. And top needs to succeed. So I just want, I will do whatever it takes. I'll, I, still intend to, I still intend to be a candidate in 2023 if they want me to be. Uh, so, yeah. I am not, I'm not here with any ego. Which I think is great for the party from the, from the pure fact that obviously I follow you on social media and your passion for the policies and especially around housing in particular and um, it would be a, sh a shame if a top party ever were to lose that because I think a party like top needs hugely passionate people that are not afraid to get out in front and um, and really, you know, speak out against those things that they really passionately believe in. And that's that's how I you get inspired. That's how you inspire other people because you're speaking from the heart and you're speaking to their heart and you're showing them that they can have a voice and that the younger people who are seeing how that how life is getting more and more difficult each and every year, they're not crazy for feeling that way. That is genuinely what is happening. And they need to see more and more people fighting for that. And it shouldn't be coming from the left or the right. It should not be a political issue that we want people to have affordable housing. That should not be political. And yet here we are. <laughs> Do we, um, we're, we're probably coming to the end. Are there any final kind of questions or, or comments from, uh, questions from you, Darren, I guess, or comments from you, Shai? I think something back to what you said before, Matt, which was, you can cut this out if you want, um, which was, you know, the likelihood of this current government getting housing under control. And it's sadly, at the moment, not looking likely. So it really is just as long as they fail, Top will keep fighting for the solution. And in an ideal world, as I said, we just wouldn't even need to exist. <laughs> and if all the other parties came along and said, you know what, Top, we'd like to take your policies, we would still say, 
have them, have them and implement them. We'll all happily go on with our own lives. But unless and until that happens, we will keep fighting and we intend to build on what we got to. And we had some amazing momentum really close to the election. And we just want to build on that. So we're not going anywhere. The only question I was going to ask, Shai, is um, what are your plans for Christmas? Oh, um, not 100% sure. Probably going down to uh, New Plymouth, where my partner's family are for Christmas Day. uh, And then hopefully spend a lot of time by the beach and do nothing. (laughs) Recover from the year. Yes, (laughs) it's it's certainly been a challenging year. Yeah, it's certainly been the biggest year for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a year to do it in. <laughs> yeah, to start a political career, not really the right year in hindsight. <laughs> probably not, no. No, apart from open, opening a hotel, there's probably not many of us. <laughs> yeah, or an airline. True. An airline or a hotel or a sports stadium, yeah. yeah. Probably not the greatest year. Or music venue, yeah. That's right. Stand up comedy, stand up comedy night. Yes. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a year. Yes. I think we all need a good long summer break. The world needs a good long summer break, though. They have winter, so hopefully <laughs> a nice snow to play in at least. That's right. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> Sky, thank you very much again for coming on. Really appreciate it. You were oh, you're so welcome. I love chatting with you guys. Good luck with the future, uh, with the you. party and with your uh, day job as well. Thanks very yeah. much. Thanks. And right. me and Matt, uh, me and Matt are both available to help out with uh, brainstorming at the top party. Well, if you guys would like to, I am always looking for more help, so that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, just don't, don't tell anyone. Nothing. I'll have to do it secretly. Uh, okay, <laughs> we won't tell anyone. <laughs> and I'm more embarrassed to tell people I'm a national voter now, so I'm I'm definitely looking for a new home somewhere. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably fair enough for a little bit of more time to come. I. What a yeah. <laughs>